Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the political party. Today's guest is Mick Lynch, General Secretary of the RMT. This is easily as entertaining as you will have hoped. Before I come on to this phenomenal chat with Mick, just a chance to remind you of some of the future guests coming up at the political party live at the Duchess Theatre in London's glittering West End. The next show, how about the timing of this for a guest? Monday the 17th of October, a week on Monday, Grant Shapps. Now, not only is he one of the most talented communicators the Tory party has produced in recent times, as someone who's now an ex-government minister, you may have noticed uh, from recent radio and TV appearances, he is not afraid to speak his mind about the current direction of the government. That will be a very special evening. Two weeks after that, on the 7th of November, one of the titans of British political and other broadcasting, David Dimbleby. All those election nights, all those editions of Question Time and all the other shows that he's made. What an honour that's going to be. Monday the 7th of November, David Dimbleby. Two weeks after that, on Monday the 14th of November, Matt Hancock. You don't need me to tell you why that will be so fascinating. As Secretary of State for Health, of course, guiding us through the COVID pandemic. Uh, He was one of the most prominent people leading this country's response uh, to COVID. So much to talk to him about. Two weeks after that, Rachel Reeves, the Shadow Chancellor, who has really stolen a march on the government and is really leading now. Um, the Tories on economic credibility. So four phenomenal guests. And then on the 19th of December, it will be the Christmas special. And I've got some very special guests to announce for next year's show. So on to today's show with Mick Lynch. Um, he is as entertaining as you would have hoped. And the, 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 the humour and the direct style that he's got that has really allowed him to cut through in a way that very few other people, very certainly very few other union bosses have ever in a way, captured the hearts of the general public in the way that Mick Lynch has. Um, And we talk about left-wing politics. We talk about why he wouldn't and why the RMT wouldn't affiliate to, re-affiliate to the Labour Party, even in the Corbyn years. We talk about the likelihood of a Labour victory and whether that cheers him or not. We talk about Russia and Ukraine. And we talk about a whole load of other things. He has got some great stories about some of those big TV moments that have really propelled him really to a level of fame. And it's just, he's a fascinating person to talk to about all sorts of things. So a bit of music and a bit of football. But this is a this is a, a, a real direct exchange and a very humorous one about the role of a trade union boss in modern Britain, the role of the RMT, what it's like for him dealing with not just the media, but companies like PNO, um, Avanti West Coast, you know, all these different transport providers. It's just a great insight into his world, but also his worldview and why he's on a particular section of the left and why he thinks that's important. So this is this is broad 
It's very entertaining. And thank you to everyone who came. It was a packed house and there's a great atmosphere. And of course, for the opening stand-up segment, my word, what a week's worth of material. It was very hard to distill it down uh, to just 20 minutes of stand-up. But here are the highlights. Thank you very much. Welcome. What a lovely crowd. Welcome to the political party. Let's Gemma, what a pleasure to be back. <laughs> of course, a lot has happened in the last well, 20 minutes, mainly. Um, but since we were last together, of course, I don't want to bring the mood down, but since we were last together, obviously big things have happened. And I thought it would only be appropriate, uh, regardless of what your political leanings are and your views on certain things, uh, to start just with a moment of silence to commemorate uh, the career of Quasi Kwartang, which... <laughs> Sadly died today and will be given a state funeral later this week. Uh, incredible, incredible period. Quasi Quartang, of course, today has now U-turned on scrapping the 45p top rate of income tax in a week where... I mean, the interview on the Today programme this morning was incredible because he's obviously a very proud man. I mean, I don't know if you're getting sick of this. I'm sick of being told how thick people are very clever. <laughs> oh, it's really good. He speaks four languages. That's no good to me. He's shit at economics, and that's all that matters. <laughs> He's got one job. I don't care how many languages he speaks. <laughs> no, imagine, no matter what your job you do, that would not get you out of a tight spot any other place than in a Tory government, where people go, he's really bad at it, but he can speak four languages, so, you know, cut me a bit of slack. Yes, Gaffer, I did burn the factory down, but uh, je m'appelle quasi quarté. Yeah. <laughs> But he did an interview this morning with Nick Robinson, which was so prickly, because obviously he's a proud man, didn't want to admit that he got it wrong, even though... This is the problem with Quasi Kwarteng. It's the sort of man who can't admit he's wrong, even when he's there, to admit that he's wrong. <laughs> like, this interview is happening because you've admitted you're wrong. And he was trying to, like, score points. And there's one point where Nick Robinson goes, a fortnight ago, you announced that you would... Sca-. He goes, actually, it was nine days ago. <laughs> oh, well done, mate. Like, anyone listening is going to go, fair play to him, he remembers exactly when he fucked it up. <laughs> much you warm into this guy the one figure he was on top of how many days since he fucked the UK economy as it was nine days ago like mate sometimes it's inappropriate to try and score points what's it like at home quasi I've heard about what you've been getting up to with your secretary are you actually committed to the vows we took on our wedding day no I'm broadly committed to the vows that we took on our wedding day uh, you know 95% of them I'm 100% behind and uh, just to make the point uh, she's not my secretary she's an executive admin assistant uh, <laughs> I mean, even that line, he said, 95, we are now fully focused. Uh, 95% of the package, I'm 100% focused on. Like, yeah, but the 5% is what we're 100% focused on. So that scene in Anchorman with Sex Panther, 60% of the time, it works every time. So he's been, and a lot of people calling it like a, a Kamikaze budget, a trust a fuck, uh, one for the Quank Bank. I mean, people have been coming up with all sorts of their own phrases for what he's put the, uh, for the, what he's put the uh, UK economy through. It's a great article in The Times. Obviously, people are just now openly briefing against him. There was this line in The Times that said, internal critics say that he lacks empathy. <laughs> what? I mean, that is beyond usual political briefing. Usually it's like, internal critics say that the Chancellor simply didn't understand the effect that his measures would have on mortgage rates. Not, he lacks empathy. <laughs> Internal, these are Tory party members, Tory party cabinet ministers saying the main problem with the Chancellor is that he simply has no value for human life. (laughs) 
let's trust, of course. Uh, my God. I mean, that... I don't know if you've listened to the full edit of her local radio interviews. It is an hour that you have to listen to. It's like a concept album of duets where she's basically singing the same song. And instead of getting better as the album goes on, she gets shitter at it. So no matter what the question... I mean, the first one, one of them, Leeds, Radio Leeds. You listen to Radio Leeds because we're joined here by uh, the Prime Minister Liz Truss. She went, uh, do you sleep all right? And Liz Truss goes, yes, I slept very well, thank you. And I bet... I mean, there are better Liz Truss impressions out there. I've had to rapidly adjust to the fact that Boris isn't Prime Minister anymore, but... Uh, she goes, yes. Uh, the thing... She's got a slight speech impediment. That. The thing that you Putin's appalling war in Ukraine. And that has damaged the UK economy. I mean, it sounds nothing like it, but it's just enough to do for tonight. Right? She goes, uh, she goes, yes, I slept very well, and I'm happy to be here on Radio Leeds. You're like, that's not what she meant. She wasn't genuinely asking you, how do you sleep at night? Usually on my side. Uh, I don't have a blackout blind, so I do use an eye mask, but I tend to get about eight hours, and I never have nightmares. It's a fucking terrible impression of this trust. It's not bad, is it? There's a bit on Radio Nottingham where they say, uh, some people around here are saying that uh, you're like the reverse Robin Hood. You're robbing from the poor to give to the rich. I mean, I half expected her to say, we had to react to the Sheriff of Nottingham's brutal <laughs> treatment of Maid Marian and her merry men. Friar Tuck has been fat-shamed and that is a disgrace. <laughs> I don't know if you saw his speech this afternoon. My God, there is a bit in it where he starts to just gently get sweatier on the forehead. Which, in a speech that's meant to reassure not just the public, but the markets. I mean, surely they react to stuff like that. If a Chancellor's saying it's under control while pissing sweat. As a viewer, I get the impression. I don't think he thinks... This. And at one point, he can handle it no more. And he doesn't just wipe the sweat off his brow, he wipes it off his whole head. This goes... Oh, never got that with Alistair Darling, did you? I mean, the eyebrows would have caught most of it, but that's not the point. <laughs> Keir Starmer, of course, had his Labour Party conference speech. Do people like Keir Starmer's conference speech? Yeah. Probably enough to win the next election, that, to be fair. <laughs> sort of tepid reaction from about five people and 300 people who really didn't give a shit, but these days that will cause a landslide, so he's on course. On course for a stunning victory at the next election. He opened with a joke, Starmer. There's a great bit in it. There were two good things about it. The first thing is, with hard work, we're getting the results. Arsenal, top of the league. <laughs> and he goes, OK, it's not a bad joke. Um, I mean, if anything, I'd like to, to have gone a bit further. Arsenal, top of the league. And I want to say this. In this beautiful Labour city of Liverpool, you're going to win fuck all. <laughs> Trent Alexander-Arnold can't even get Carl Walker out of the England squad. It's nothing is happening. City are going to walk it, you fucking losers. <laughs> really lean into it, Keir. But he, uh, he, he said a number of things. There was a bit in it. Well, I thought it was a very good speech. And you could feel now. I mean, it feels like he's going to be our next Prime Minister. There was a bit in it where... You know when politicians use phrases that you've heard elsewhere and they make out like it's the first time anyone said it? He said, fail to prepare. You prepare to fail. We're like, yeah, great. You're like, 
It's basically off a fucking No Fear t-shirt. <laughs> if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. <laughs> First place is second look... Oh, shit. I've ruined it! <laughs> Second place is first... I'll never forget something my mum used to say to me. Prior preparation prevents piss-poor performance. <laughs> sort of management speak. There was a great line in it where he said, uh, I talked to doctors in the NHS and they say to me, Kia. I said to them, I said, the NHS is on its knees. And they said, Kia, it's not. It is face down. And then he stopped there. You're like, they definitely didn't stop there. You should have said exactly what they said to me. Kia, it is face down in a puddle of its own sick, and it has fully shat itself. <laughs> of course, uh, one of the major... Uh, actually, let me talk before we go on to that. Lee Anderson, who uh, I'm becoming a sort of cult fan of, a, a Tory MP for Ashfield, who uh, you may remember a few months ago said that people, unemployed people should be forced out into the fields six o'clock every morning to pick carrots and other seasonal vegetables. There's a lovely caveat, that, and whatever else is growing and all, not just, don't let them off picking that. Is that a Tory fringe, firstly, his take on the Quartang thing, he went, it's not a U-turn, it's change of direction. <laughs> it's, you know, it's not a machete, it's just big cutlery, I don't know what the problem is. He also, a fringe meeting said, people just convincing themselves they're poor, because they're turning on the telly, everyone's telling them they're poor. Uh, yeah, mate, you've confused actual poverty and watching the news. Turn the telly off, no one's telling them they're poor. They don't feel poor, do they? It's just, it's just negative thinking, isn't it? Like these paramedics who turn up saying, oh, you're dying of stab wounds. Don't say that to him, mate. You know what I mean? If you didn't tell him that, he'd have probably felt all right. Get him off to hospital, get him a nice meal of carrots and seasonal vegetables. He'd be right as rain, like. Obviously, the, uh, the big news was the, uh, the, the, the death of the Queen, and uh, what, some of the footage was, was incredible. And what you realise is so many of our broadcasters have to fill hours and hours and hours, really with very little training. And there are two types of, of, of royal correspondence. One is the one that can sort of melancholically fill just endless time. I remember watching the bit where uh, the, the Queen's coffin had left... Uh, Balmoral and then was travelling down Scotland just mesmerising, just watching a car drive through the country and people who can just keep going, of course the Queen's car going through Aberdeenshire part of the country that the Queen loved so much and the beautiful fields there that you can see uh, and grass was something that the Queen so adored and <laughs> was present of course in the garden at the back of Buckingham Palace and it's no coincidence that it also grew in the parks around there, St James's Park Hyde Park and many of the other parks in London, Clapham Common Hampstead Heath, places that she may or may not have visited, but always get the sense with the Queen that, of course, as well as grass, she had a respect for concrete and its place in a public realm and apparently loved the sound that gravel made as the car would drive over it, and that's why it's fitting she's in a car today, taking this final journey on concrete. You're like, this is mesmerising how good they are at it. And then you get the other one, who's like the sort of... The one who always sounds roaring drunk... Yes, well, the Queen, of course, was a big fan of horses, and uh, her face would light up with anywhere such a fan of horses. Uh, she gave birth to a number of children who ended up looking like them. Uh, yes. Incredible. Like, the difference, and, of course, the, always very melancholic, very respectful of what's happening here today. And you can just keep going like that. Remarkable talent for it. And then, the, I mean, the pressure on the driver. 
didn't stop once. Obviously, at the point where Hugh Edwards takes over, you're like, okay, this is now, this is the, the elite broadcasting. Of the drive. I mean, it would have been amazing. But the part, I think part of it, you do watch it. You're mesmerised by how good our armed forces are and just everything. But there is a part of you thinking, it'd be cool if something little went wrong. Like, nothing, <laughs> you don't want them to drop the casket or anything like that. But, like, just a, a, a small wrinkle would have been quite interesting to watch in the driver there uh, seems to be pulling into a shell garage. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm not a lip-reading expert, uh, Marie, but it looked like he was saying, I'm busting for a shit. <laughs> so, he's gone in there. We'll bring you more on that as it develops. Uh, you probably will have a piss as well, Paul. This tends to be what happens when people go to the toilet, and we're just waiting for him to come back now. Uh, our source is uh, suggesting he's gone to the Wild Bean Cafe. Uh, <laughs> Yes, this is him emerging now with a steak slice and a chicken katsu baguette. And a big can of monster, probably, yes, you're right, to counteract the effect of the baguette. That's absolutely right. But we get the casket back on track now, and he proceeds... No, he's gone the wrong way, actually. He's, uh, he's turned to the guy next to him and said, you had one fucking job. Uh, he's punching it into the sat-nav now. Uh, how did he not need a piss that whole time? Turns out he went in a bottle and uh, just threw it out in a lay-by uh, when we cut away to that beautiful shot of uh, Aberdeenshire. But uh, Starmer is how he looks like Keir Starmer's going to be the, uh, the next uh, Prime Minister. Liz Truss, of course, has won a Tory party leadership contest uh, since we were last all together. Uh, I think it's fair to say that people have, on some level, until now, certainly internally, her opponents uh, underestimated her. And there was a very profound political reason for that. Uh, she's weird. <laughs> that will lead to people underestimating. I mean, let's trust is weird on that sort of level where it's that slight indefinable weirdness where, you know, if you were in a, a diner in the middle of nowhere and Liz Truss served you, you would go back to your table and go, we need to get out of here now. <laughs> I mean, she won partly by tax cuts, also by just dressing up as Margaret Thatcher. And they liked it. We all, we all saw it happening, copying her hair, copying her clothes. And even on the TV, they would say, of course, Liz Truss, deliberately copying the style. You're, like, you're dressing up as a dead woman, and that's cool. I mean, only in the time, mean, whatever you think of the Labour Party. Imagine if Keir Starmer turned up to that last leadership debate when he ran for it against Rebecca Long-Bailey with a slaphead wig and a stick-on tash. I've got, I've come today as the rotting corpse of Clement Attlee. <laughs> it's what the Labour members want. I mean, it probably is, but that's not the point. <laughs> Would have been weird. Uh, part of Starmer's popularity, I think, is, is twofold. One, he genuinely is in tune with the country on a whole number of things, like singing the national anthem and stuff like that, and politically. And on top of that, he does periodically, for every straight speech he gives, he'll maybe give ten really straight Keir Starmer speeches, and then he'll pop up on a podcast maybe once a month and swear... And people love this. He was on Anthony Campbell. He's a bullshitter. Boris Johnson's a bullshitter. Liz Truss is taking the piss. But God, we really like this. Right, is that all it's going to take for Keir Starmer to win the next election? Just swear it. He should start doing it. In, I mean, when Parliament is recalled eventually, he should start with that. The first words, Mr. Speaker, listen to the words of the new Prime Minister and Chancellor. Fuck my ass. <laughs> Order. Oh, no, no, no. He knows it. Lead up with you. <laughs> hey, shut up, I'm dealing with it. Shut it. Hey, leave that. I don't need help from you, okay? Le- no, no, no. Leave the opposition knows he can't say that. No, no, no. I-, I don't want to throw a beat. I don't want to throw a 
say the point. We could just rephrase it. Uh, uh, we'll carry, if you could, please. Our difference to you, Mr. Speaker, I'll rephrase it. Fuck my anus. <laughs> well, that's perfectly fine. Please carry on. Now, uh, usually we have uh, elected politicians, sometimes advisors, but there is one individual who really has become the political star of the year. Outfoxing Chris Philp, Kay Burley, Piers Morgan, basically anyone that has dared interview him. So let's see how the next hour goes. But whether you're left wing or right wing or around the centre ground, I think tonight's guest has really proven the power of clear, calm communications. And his interviews around the RMT strike action single-handedly re-educated the public and changed the public mood around some of that. He's a phenomenal communicator. He's a massive personality. Please welcome the General Secretary of the Rail and Maritime Union, Mick Lynch. Hello. Hello. How you doing? All right. Nice to see you. You too. Good evening. So Mick, I'm sure you're getting invited to all sorts of events these days. I do. <laughs> everything. And, and I want um, everything. Well, I should ask, how did you get here tonight? I walked. How about that? No limousines. <laughs> Shoe leather. <laughs> but is it... Has your... I mean, I guess it's fame. Has it taken you by surprise? Oh, a little bit. Look at me. A man in my condition, uh, 60, and I was an anonymous union bureaucrat, as my members call me. And now I'm... What am I doing here? I don't know. I was on a I Got News For You last week. I was addressing 10,000 people on Saturday, 3,000 in Birmingham yesterday. It's a bit weird, really. But I guess when you're a union general secretary, you're used to addressing conferences and yep. meetings and things like that. So you're not a stranger to public speaking. No, it's the, uh, the media. I mean, I've done quite a lot of media work, but the disputes are always uh, lower level. So it would be the Tube, it would be East Midlands Rail up your way. We had a long dispute up there a couple of years ago. And you're doing local radio. I did that thing that Trusted, uh, famously, <laughs> where you go, you go into a little booth and you're there, you've just got the microphone, and they switch through Berkshire, BBC Wales, whatever, you know. And, uh, but I got out all right. There was no headlines <laughs> after I did it, apart from in the the Nottingham Echo or the Derbyshire Bugle or whatever it was. It was all right. So I don't know what went wrong for her. Maybe it was the ability to speak that was uh, beyond her. Yeah. I don't think she had the latest software update. But, <laughs> but you know, yeah, it's a bit, bit, bit odd. But anyway. Is that oh, the microphone's just gone. Oh, look, one, two, of, oh, there we are. We're back up. Um, so you've always had this sort of style, which is you have an air of authority about you, but... People yeah. expect sometimes trade union people, and I think a lot of the people interviewing you, particularly perhaps Kay Burley and Piers Morgan, expected you to be a 1970s-style yeah. union leader. How would you characterise yourself? Well, what I found... When you, I mean, I've been doing negotiating a long time. I wasn't always an officer, but I was doing it as a rank and file, as shop steward and all that. One HR manager said to me, that was a really interesting meeting because Mick Lynch got all scary... And, you know, and you've got to turn it on. There's no point every day you go in start ranting and raving and rowing because they'll just go, well, there he is again. You want a bit of reasoned argument. You get tough questions off, off the companies and you get tough questions off decent journalists. You get some really shit questions off some shit journalists as well. <laughs> Excuse my French. And that's what you deal with. So if, if it's a proper decent question, it will get a, a really good answer, hopefully. And do you find, when you interact with the media in general... That, that people are quite keen to pigeonhole trade unions as a particular <laughs> yeah. thing, which is 1970s militant types. Well, I find it really peculiar. The Daily Mail, which I think is poison, 
personified. You know, for, for women and people of different backgrounds, the way they say your body shape has got to be this and they push all this poison at everyone, they're owned by a Viscount, Viscount Rothermere, but me and Dave Ward, who were working-class blokes from council estates in London, and other, you know, Sharon Graham, who's from the same part of the world as I am, I'm from in West London, we are barons. We get elected and we can get thrown out. You know, I can tell you, my, if I didn't do it properly, my members would throw me out. But these people who dictate the news, who dictate how people feel about themselves and peddle racism, peddle sexism, peddle anti-foreigner stuff and all the rest of it, they say, oh, you're a baron and you're holding the country at ransom. I just find that completely objectionable. And you try to break out of the stereotype, but if you look like me, the stereotype does run quite a long way. <laughs> I, I accept that. Because obviously Bob Crow was, a, was an yeah. iconic General Secretary of the, the RMT. Are, are you the heir to Bob Crow? I mean, heir's probably the wrong word. But are you the... Well, um, he wasn't a baron either, so... <laughs> it's not hereditary, mate. You have to get elected. But do you think there is a kind of... I guess every industry has its stereotypes and, and uh, its internal styles. Do you think there is a way that trade union leaders have to be, that, that authority yeah, there? You are honed by... I mean, it's a tough gig. If you're a union officer or even a union rep, and there might be a couple in here tonight, you have to go to work in men's clubs, railway clubs, pubs and town halls and account for what you've done, what you haven't done or what you can't do. And they never let you off. And you get a far tougher grilling off a... Of, a bunch of uh, union activists, and you'll ever get off some media lovies at W1A or wherever they hang out, you know. <laughs> it is a tougher gig. So that, it hardens you, but it also lets you think on your feet. I mean, you've shown that tonight. You've got to adapt to what the news coverage is today. I mean, it, it could be completely different by the time we get out of this, this black bunker that we're in. But, you know, the world could have changed, and you've just got to get on with it. And, and it does train you quite a lot. But what they can't imagine and which I think has really thrown them, is that working-class people with working-class accents can articulate a case on their own behalf because they black us out of the media. I mean, that could also imply internally in the Labour Party that that might oh, be yeah. news to some people. Well, it is a bit news. I mean, there's a myth that there is a working-class Labour leadership out there. They've never been led by the working class. Uh, Clement Attlee, the hero, was a... Uh, a Haleybury went to a military college and he was a public school boy, but he did, did the job. Uh, Harold Wilson, was the, he got the best degree at Oxford, PPE degree, that has ever been achieved. A bit like Kwasi Kwarteng got the gold medal for ancient Greek uh, Eton or whatever. These people were not all working class. They were there to represent... Jim Callaghan was fairly working class and so was Ramsay MacDonald. Strangely, but he let, let the side down a bit. But, so there's always been an element where working people have allowed politically, have allowed people from a different class to come in and run the show on their behalf. And that's certainly what happened with Tony Blair. God bless him. And Keir Starmer's trying to, you know, he's trying to tread this path that I am a, the son of a toolmaker. And uh, what's his name? Sadiq Khan says my dad was a bus driver every minute that you meet him. Well, he must do to you, because you're in the yeah, RMT. But, he, but what he won't do is give free travel to subcontractor workers. But there you go, for bus drivers. Yeah, so it's, a, it's a funny... It's a funny set-up, the Labour Party, as you know. Oh, I, yes, I think anyone with a telly uh, mm. can, can figure that out. But um, Keir Starmer is from a working-class background, isn't he? I mean, he's authentically working-class, and he is the leader of the Labour Party. So yeah. in that way, perhaps he is, he is pretty unique in terms of the modern history mm. of the Labour Party. He is. Certainly compared to Tony, Tony Blair, who, uh, 
who said that I remember watching Jackie Milburn on the, uh, on the Gallagher at Newcastle. So somebody pointed out he'd been dead for six years before <laughs> he was born. So he, he, he did know... Uh, he does know his stuff, Keir. Mate, you, you are slightly provoking me with this. You know, the, the Blair... Jack, I mean, I... He's a Blairite. That's, that that's why. <laughs> oh, it's no secret. It was... Um, I feel I have to correct the record. Um, he was asked two separate questions. They actually played this on Football Focus. He was asked oh, right. two separate okay. questions. Who he thought the greatest ever player of Newcastle United was, and he said Jackie Milburn, and then he was asked about going to his first game, and he said he oh, right. stood okay. on the Gallagher end. So, uh, again, he should have been know, a spin doctor, really. Well, I think, uh, I think on many issues, history will judge him um, well. Um, so, obviously, the RMT disaffiliated during, during the Blair years. Um, Expelled. Well, yeah, I mean, you know. There's still a debate going on about that. Potato, we were, potato. We were expelled for backing socialists in elections. Well, yeah. That's a strange thing to happen in the Labour Party, where they back all sorts of people that aren't socialists. But if you are affiliated... Tony Blair. <laughs> but if you're affiliated to a, to a political party, why would you campaign against it? Well, we were trying to change the scene a bit. Uh, there, was that, there was that war. You don't remember, remember that war that happened? Kosovo? They, they were back in... Uh, strikers, but unfortunately they were airstrikes, <laughs> what was going on. So we were getting a bit upset that a government that was elected on the fact that they were going to uh, have a publicly owned, publicly accountable railway didn't do that, and then they invaded the country that had never done them any harm at all. So it was a bit of a fissure in the movement at the time. Yes, and it, it wasn't exclusive to the RMT. Uh, no. Internal and external concerns. But we backed a successful b- bunch of uh, Scottish Trotskyites that has put us outside the... Uh, the Labour movement for the last 20 years, but there we go. And are you now tempted to, to rejoin, to re-affiliate? No, because I've got the... As Blair said, I've got the scars on my back. And we were about, in our own union, we will not be affiliating to the Labour Party. Keep writing that down, all of you. <laughs> and we're not even going to have the debate about affiliating to the Labour Party. We're quite happy. We can go along to their conference, blow raspberries at them, encourage them to be more socialist, and then go home before the boring bit starts, which is what, precisely, <laughs> precisely what I did last weekend. So have you met Keir Starmer? I met Keir Starmer on the P&O dispute. He was really, and I, we always say this, he was really good on P&O. But that was like being in, on the side of Bambi against the Hunters or whatever, you know. <laughs> you couldn't go wrong with P&O. Even the Democratic Unionists were on our side. <laughs> and with my background, that was a big leap. Uh, we'll discuss that another time. But, uh, yeah, so everyone in Parliament was against P&O, apart from dear old Grant Shapps. Uh, who did nothing about it. But Starmer was good. He got the, the, the members in into his private office. He did a Zoom down to our Dover office, and he was really good. So on that bit, he was good. I can't fault him. And that's the way we'll approach it. When he does well, we'll give him a tick. And when he does badly, we'll give him a raspberry. How about that? Well, it sounds perfectly pragmatic. Yeah. Um, but as he ever said to us, he said, Mick, rejoin the Labour Party. No. Wait, I was at the TUC dinner last year, it was happens on the night before the TUC Congress, and the Labour leader always comes. And I was standing by the lift, and he came straight out, and he turned immediately to his right and went around me, <laughs> around everyone else, to get over to dear old uh, Francis O'Grady, uh, where he felt safe. So even when Corbyn was leader, you didn't, you didn't even consider reaffiliating. No, we had a big row about that, and we didn't do it. So uh, it was considered, and some people wanted to, and some people didn't. But our members who are sovereign in our union, decided not to do it. And did you want to do it? I was ambivalent. Oh, come on. I was playing both ends against the middle. <laughs> you were a centrist? No, I just care. Just, 
Just careful in the union that I don't get caught out later on. Back the winner. Just work out who's going to win the argument and then back them. That's my attitude. That's really smart advice, actually. Yeah. Um, so what did you think of Corbyn, then? Well, I like Jeremy. He's a friend of ours. I saw him on Saturday. He came to our rally. We shook hands, had a cuddle, all that, you know, all that stuff. Very close friends. Uh, you know, both vegetarians and all the rest of it. So <laughs> we support him. But I'm a realist. Uh, we're not going to win the election. I mean, we, either people that aren't Tories, is what I mean by that. That's about 70% of the country, hopefully. By electing our favourite lefty to be the leader, because they'll do them in. We've seen it time and again. They even did it to Kinnock. I left the Labour Party when Kinnock uh, was the leader, because I found him to be very strange and very right-wing at the time. So I haven't been in the Labour Party myself for whatever that is, 35 years, because he got on my, on my wick. And uh, I couldn't get on with all these people that were taking over. And so I don't think we're going to get there. So our job now is to put these politicians, all of them, whether it's Nicola Sturgeon, uh, the fellow running the Welsh uh, government, these um, big mayors that we're getting now in Manchester and Liverpool and so on and in London, we've got to put them all under manners to deliver for our people. And it doesn't matter to me who they are. It's obviously better if there's a Labour uh, government, as we would say, Mark, you won't like hearing this from your back, and it's in our class interest to get rid of this party and get another one in. And that, at the moment, would have to be Keir Starmer. But we're not going to re-affiliate. So then, I mean, just on that, obviously if you do get a Labour government, or even if you don't, if you're affiliated to the Labour Party, you're more round the table with them. You'd have more say at the heart of Downing Street if Keir Starmer or any other Labour leader had Corbyn one. Yeah, the Constitution, you have to back everything they do, because you're affiliate, you can't break the rules. So you have to back everything that they say. So if they're going to have a war with someone, you have to, nominally, you're affiliated to that group, that's their policy, so by association you're supporting that war. And some unions found themselves very compromised during Iraq. But you would also get a say, and plenty of people did speak out, you know, they were affiliated, but they would still mm. have a voice. It's not that they can't say anything. If you're affiliated, you do get to choose parliamentary candidates. Affiliated unions have a mm. whole load of power over who gets what yeah. seats in the Labour I mean, you could get more RMT voices, literally on the floor of the House of Commons, maybe even in the Cabinet. Maybe Prime Minister. An but RMT there are 50, well, there's 49 RMT MPs in Parliament now. So even though we're not affiliated, we've got a lot of influence. We've got a big caucus. And surprise, surprise, given our brand and our profile, as we have to say, there are prospective candidates saying, can the RMT endorse me? Because in some areas around this country, in the future, it's going to be really important which side you were on in this period. And if you're not standing on a picket line, some people are going to say, where were you in 2022? Yeah, so obviously the issue of picket lines is something that is uh, yeah. very live for Keir Starmer's leadership. And he, I think it's fair to say, his view is uh, you can have solidarity with working people, um, but Labour frontbenchers don't necessarily need to be on picket lines taking selfies. Do you have a, any sympathy at all with that view? Well, I think he boxed himself in. He set himself a trap by saying, this is my stand, and a lot of people would really struggle with it. I think what he really meant was don't go on an RMT picket line, because they're all mad, <laughs> is what he meant. Is he wrong? And we, well, no, he is wrong, completely wrong, because well, I think we've turned, uh, not just us, but the, the stance we've taken has helped to turn the country because people are really angry. I don't expect him to come personally to a picket line, but there are people coming. The, the shadow rail spokesman comes to all our picket lines uh, every time in his constituency, but he just keeps a low profile. So you've got to make your mind up which side are you on, the good people or the bad people? Yes, but sometimes the people who think they're good 
turn out to be the bad people. So let's just talk about Corbyn in more detail. Um, <laughs> if you've got a class analysis of British politics, why do you think working class people were so repelled by Corbyn? Uh, I think they were trained to do it by people like yourself. Uh, <laughs> and the, uh, the right wing in the Labour Party, Mandelson. I was on a panel with John McTernan last week. Legend. The most right wing person outside the Tory party <laughs> and to the right of some people in the Tory party. Surely Farage is a bit further to the right. Tommy Robinson. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> but there's a crossover between this central area where they just want to run the country the way it's always been run and debate it amongst themselves. And people like McTernan and Campbell and the spin doctors we don't know in the Tory party think that they can run the country for themselves in the future. And there's a little... Band, there's a little parameter set like that that you can only go into. So it was in their interest to do Corbyn down and do his ideas down. But they're not going to be completely successful because in order to run a Labour Party, you do need an army and you need a bigger ground game than the Tories do because the Tories have the media and Labour don't. So there's still... There's 200,000 people left the Labour Party since Corbyn went. Now, some people think that's a good thing because the left has been diluted. And I can't say go back in because I'm not here myself, but there you go. So I do realise the contradictions of my position. <laughs> Is it not slightly patronising to say that working-class people were convinced by the media or the right of the Labour Party or Alistair Campbell or me or whoever without giving them credit for being clever people who can think for Oh, themselves? I understand it. I mean, uh, a lot of working-class people are patriotic and they like the Union Jack and they like the Queen and all that. And if you're a Labour politician, you've got to live with that and you've got to, without giving up all of your own values. I mean, Starmer is an atheist. He'll have to deal, if he's a Prime Minister, with going to Westminster Cathedral and St Paul's and attending all these ceremonies. You do that in a bit more of a discreet way. So what they did with Corbyn, they just went back to every clip they could ever find and they just kept pumping the lie out all the time that this man wasn't fit to govern. But what they never said, he's a person of principle and he likes peace before war, whereas other people who are not elected on the, pr the programme of going to war, who've declared war on people who can't fight back and still call themselves uh, Labour politicians, and that's not acceptable. Was it not also that, fundamentally, actually, he's not really a man of peace, that he'd shared platforms with some pretty terrible people, and when that was exposed, it, it well, undermined his whole offer? Well, Winston Churchill, in 1921, had to sit up the road negotiating with the IRA, directly with the Commander-in-Chief of the IRA, with the, pro the Prime Minister at the time, and with all of the Cabinet. And those, some of those negotiations took, round, took place directly at the Cabinet table that's still there in Number 10 Downing Street. Some of these people have committed acts of terror themselves. You know, Winston Churchill gassed people in Mesopotamia, as it was. Clement Attlee uh, declared war on the Arabic people in, pa in the Palestine Mandate. So nobody is innocent. Everybody's got stuff in their background that they probably regret. What Jeremy Corbyn think, was doing, I think, was saying to people like Sinn Féin and the IRA, you need to rethink your game because you're not actually getting anywhere. And Livingston did the same here. And eventually, of course, Tony Blair had to enter the same room as Martin McGuinness and, and others uh, to, to, to conduct the peace talks. And that's the only way you're going to get peace if you talk to the people that are in conflict. But there's a difference between doing this as Prime Minister and talking to all sides and doing it as Jeremy Corbyn did, where he only ever met with the most extreme people in any debate. He never used to meet with the SDLP. 
He never used to meet with unionist groups in Northern Ireland. He only met with one group of people. Well, I don't know if he's met with the SDLP. The SDLP sits in Parliament and they take the Labour whip. So the, the, the SDLP has been in Parliament the whole time. I don't know if he met with John Hume and uh, Seamus Mallon. He might well have done. I don't know if you know he didn't meet them. He must have met them every day, sitting on the same benches. Well, I think there are, well, what a lot of Labour MPs tell me is they never saw Corbyn in the division lobby because he was always voting with the Tories against the Labour government. Oh, well, <laughs> against war, generally, and against, <laughs> and against cuts and austerity, which is consistent. And what was your assessment of him then? Because you're obviously a highly talented communicator, perhaps far more mm. pragmatic than some of the people who've interviewed you realise. In terms of someone who I'm sure believes in meritocracy, did you think he was the best candidate the left could have found? I think he was the, what Labour Party needed at the time because it had be, it'd gone so far into the world of spin and control freak politics. It had lost all its heart and all its contact with working people. It had lost as much contact as, uh, as Corbyn was accused of. Let's not forget that Brown lost the election, not Corbyn. Brown put Labour out of power because he looked like a technocrat and he wasn't connecting. And Cameron created this image that he was some kind of Etonian council estate uh, dweller. <laughs> Uh, whereas, in fact, Gordon Brown had far more connection with, with working people in that sense of his heritage. But, yeah, it's, look, these things come and go. I think he was always on a loser, uh, Corbyn. And he tried to create a broader house. Let's not forget, he said to all those Labour MPs, we will create a broad church in the PLP and have a shadow cabinet that reflects a lot of opinion in the PLP. And none of them would sit there. In fact, they spent their time sharpening the knives. And I was at an AGM, an RMT AGM, where they were announcing their resignations every 30 minutes due to the instructions of people like Alistair Campbell, who were trying to destroy the Labour Party at the time. So when you see the Labour Party now, far more popular than it was under Corbyn, mm. on the brink of power, does that warm your soul on any level? Well, I want Labour to win the election. So it's better than them floundering around on 15%. Uh, but what I'm fully aware of is that when they get into power, we will have to do our damnedest to have an independent working class organisation based on the trade unions community activity that brings everybody in. So it will bring identity politics, it will bring Black Lives Matter, uh, environmental groups, whatever you've got out there, whether it's your local library or CND, all those people will have to be in a, co a progressive coalition to keep the Labour Party under manners, as my mother would have said to keep them keen, to know that their, their support is not to be taken for granted. And that's the biggest uh, crime of the Labour Party for 100 years, taking working-class people for granted. And that's what happened in various referendums, referenda, whatever it is, and some of the elections around that period. People felt they were taken for granted. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Perhaps more so at the last election than at any of them when mm. working class people refused to vote for a Labour leader that they felt was unpatriotic, um, turned away from our natural allies, whether it's the European Union, America, towards perhaps mm. Iran, and uh, other regimes around the world. Were but they were also convinced to not implement the, uh, the referendum result. They were, they were convinced by the Islington, uh, Camden elite and all the spin doctors to go for a second referendum. And people found that really insulting. But no matter you... what you think about it, and you, but I don't want to re-rehearse yeah. Brexit again, because that would be really tedious, but they didn't want to implement what the people had voted for. And that's what really pissed people off. In your part of the world and all over England, mainly. But, well, people were already pissed off with Corbyn, weren't they? But on top of that, you were in favour of Brexit. Are you still in favour of it? Well, I'm in favour of... We were in favour of Brexit because we were asked the question, do you support the European Union? We didn't support what's in the Constitution, the Maastricht Treaty and Lisbon, which is mandatory privatisation. So, this is really boring now. No, it's the, fascinating the, because the, it's the, the left fourth, wing case for The fourth railway package says that all railway services in Europe have to be liberalised, and that's happening right now in Italy and Spain and France and Germany. Even though people will tell you they're not privatising, it's what's called liberalisation. So, they have to parcel up all the railway services and offer them to competition. They will follow that up with healthcare, and healthcare in Europe is privatised. It's not private, well, it is getting privatised here. That will be in the Constitution. It's not that you just choose it as a policy for a passing government. It's actually in the four powers, the free movement of labour, free movement of capital and all the rest of it. You have to privatise your core services. And that's what they will do. And you can't, you can't exempt yourself from that. So that's why we're opposed to it. So when you see the economic impact of Brexit on your members, mm. on working class people across the UK... You still think that was a price worth paying? Well, people have to ask that themselves. That's what they voted for. I mean, it was laid out by some people. I mean, I remember when Ireland left the United Kingdom. I don't remember it, but my old man used to tell me that. <laughs> but when Ireland left the United Kingdom, it wasn't pain-free. It caused a lot of problems in Ireland. But if you went back to the people of Ireland in the Republic and said, do you want to rejoin the United Kingdom because you might get a, a better marginal tax rate or something? They'd say, no, I don't. I want my dignity. I voted for an, an independent Ireland. If you went to Ghana, where Kwasi Kwarteng's from, and said to them, oh, if you'd stayed in the empire, Kwasi Kwarteng actually believes in this, strangely, you were better off under the empire, do you want to vote to rejoin? Because there's been trouble when people have taken their independence. If you went to India, despite all the problems that the, 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 the separation of the states in India caused, people wouldn't go, yeah, I want to go back. I want to be uh, kowtowing to an authority. And the, the European Union is not a democratic institution. The policies are made by officials, not by governments, and the European Union does not have the right to turn over the Commission. So I told you this would be boring. No, it's fascinating. But it's not a democratic institution. In the, when you get an independent sovereign state, which is what we believe in, and as a socialist I believe in that, you should be allowed to implement a socialist agenda in your own sovereign state, and the Corbyn Manifesto would have been illegal in the European Union, in my opinion. So you want you're effectively socialism in one country? To no, quote I want socialism everywhere, but a, 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 
If you join a federation that's based on not having socialism and writes it into the constitution that believes in the free movement of capital, no matter what you think about that in your country, then you cannot write your own policy. So you cannot write a fiscal policy because it will be written in Frankfurt. And if you ask the people of Greece and Spain and Italy what they think about that, they have had to implement austerity because of decisions in Brussels, Strasbourg and Frankfurt. So and I don't think we're ready for that. And I don't think the British people wanted it. And how did you feel then during that campaign, effectively being on the same side as Jacob Rees-Mogg, Nigel Farage? Well, I'm not on the same side. I'll be getting on a tube later. But I, don't, I want to go to Ealing Broadway, but I don't ask everyone why they're going to Ealing Broadway and have they got the same motivations for me. Our position... <laughs> our position... about that. Has been the same about the European Union ever since the Constitution was brought in. So when it was the EEC, most people in Britain would have been happy with that. So you sort out what your regulations are on electricity supply, you get everybody counting to den rather than pounds, shillings and pence, which is what happened in 71. You're too young for all this, aren't you? Yeah, when we got decimalisation and all that and moved away from uh, pounds and stones and so we could actually work out what we were counting and what we were getting paid... That was all progressive. And then when they started going further, we will have a federal Europe and you will not have the ability to make all of your own laws. Many people in Britain and many socialists in Britain, including right-wingers in the Labour Party, uh, traditionally, like uh, Peter Shaw uh, and Tony Benn from the other side, said that is not where we should go as a, as a country. We'll never get a Labour programme through it again. So that's correct. About- where we're going now as a, as a country. Kwasi Kwarteng, I'm not sure if you saw his speech, but today he said effectively they'll bring in new laws to stop strikes. Mm. Um, and obviously people already have concerns about the laws that this government's brought in to stop protest, but to stop strikes as well. Um, how is the union movement going to react to that, and, and specifically the RMT? Well, it's interesting. They said they're going to have a bonfire of regulation. The only thing they're going to regulate is the relationship between my trade union and its members and all the other trade unions. So they will tell us how we have to do everything. They already do that to a certain extent. We've got the harshest anti-union laws anywhere in the Western world. That's outside Wyoming, I think. But there you go. I don't know why Wyoming's gone that way, but that's the way it is. Um, So they're going to change it all again. What they're trying to do is make protest illegal on the street. They're trying to make campaigns against poverty illegal. So that's what we're campaigning against in Enough is Enough and the People's Assembly. We're saying we will not accept poverty and they are seeking to impose poverty on millions of people. So if you haven't got a trade union that's able to rebalance the workplace and then go into the communities that can organise people who haven't been organised for 20 or 30 years, which is what our our mission is now, we're going to have a severe curtailment of civil rights. Everything else will go out the window. So it was all right in Poland in 1980 and and, all through that period of Lech Wałęsa, which I had supported and sometimes unpopular in the left in Britain, they were all illegal trade unions. If you tried to start a union in China tomorrow that was based on what we do here, that would be illegal. If you did it in Russia, that would be illegal. But they want to bring those laws here and say it's democratic. So it's a real problem, but we'll fight them industrially, and we're going to, we've launched a new ballot today on the railway to get that mandate back. We'll fight them in the courts. The TUC are telling me that half the stuff they're putting up is illegal internationally. And we'll have to see what we do industrially. We'll continue with our campaigns and we'll beat anything they put in front of us. I guarantee you one thing, though, Matt. We've been going 150 years, our union, and we'll still be here when they've gone.
just on industrial action and, and strikes, obviously, I think it's probably fair to say that the British public would say they defend working people and their right to strike, and they're instinctively mm. on the side of working-class people who, whose last resort is to withhold their labour against uh, an employer. What they would also say is, not on the day I've got to travel. Yeah. So, and sometimes these strikes are obviously coordinated for maximum disruption around things like Glastonbury Festival or the Edinburgh Festival. Or Can you guarantee that you won't do it around the FA Cup final yeah, next year? Yeah, I've got that. It's all on a big whiteboard in my office. So I went on to uh, what they called Suzanne and... Um... <laughs> but you no, wouldn't it's not, do... It's not. But you didn't do... But you called it off for the Queen's funeral. Well, because that was the... It was the decent thing to do. There's a lot of, a lot of our people in our union who are not radical lefties. We've, the railways always had a strong connection to the armed forces because it's a regulated industry. There's a lot of discipline in it. You know, you work by a, a very strict set of rules. And we would have got done in by some of our own members. Our members are all... I mean, they're very solid in what they believe in and supporting the strikes, and they would not have respected it. Somebody has died, you know. That's also my view. My mother died when she was elderly. I've had lots of relatives who, who've died, obviously, as you go through life, and there's a certain amount of respect that the country was looking for. So that's, we took that decision within 20 minutes of finding out it was going to happen. And I think we took the right decision. But this idea... I mean, I was on what they call Suzanne and Richard Madeley and all that in the oh, studio. Oh, good morning, Britain. And they said to me, <laughs> you've ruined Glastonbury. Mm. And I said, I don't know when Glastonbury is. It's just a bunch of hippies as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> So that's a Corbyn. See, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a 1977-78 man, you see. So <laughs> Glastonbury was a bunch of hippies doing long guitar solos when the last time I checked it out was... I've seen the specials the, at Glastonbury. The Enid and Sprog... What was it called? The Wet Sprocket or something. <laughs> or whatever they were called. All these prog bands. That's what I associate. And then they, they said to me... This was completely surreal. They said to me, you're ruining Elton John's tour. <laughs> I have no idea. I said, you might be surprised to know I'm not following closely Elton John's <laughs> farewell tour. But I do get a lot of emails saying you've ruined this. And I say, strangely, I didn't know it was your 60th birthday. <laughs> get, and can you send me £40 for my train fare? <laughs> You're a Chelsea fan, so if Chelsea got to the FA Cup final, would there be part of you in the executive meeting, even a small part of you going, OK, well, not on that day... Well, if Ariza Balaga was going to pull this stroke about not coming off the pitch, I might make sure that he was confined <laughs> to a, a, a railway side in somewhere so that he follows the manager's instructions. Some people won't be getting that link, but there we go. Um, the League Cup final a few years ago. No, we, we don't do that. We do for the most effect on the companies. Uh, but we did hit the Tory party because they would then have to get their chauffeurs to drive them and they wouldn't get the day off. So have you been in Birmingham then for the Tory conference this week? I was there yesterday. And because there's been some footage of Jacob Rees-Mogg and Michael Fabrican, yep. it looks like there were crowds around them. Mixed reports over whether they were jostled or not. I mean, do you have a view of where the line is in terms of the behaviour of unions and members? Well, I don't believe in violence. I'm a man of peace, as you know, as they say. <laughs> I don't believe you should assault people or do it, but I do believe in forceful heckling and uh, <laughs> blocking uh, people's access in a, in a you know, sort of Gandhi way, if you want to put it that way. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, a Jacob's Reed Mogg was this far away from me at one stage, and he was walking along with four coppers. Why he chose to walk through uh, along, well, alongside 3,000 angry Birmingham lefties, I don't know. But, to be fair, I'm hearing that Michael Fabricant said I was not pushed to the ground, because uh, his hair would have come off, wouldn't it, if, it had, <laughs> if he had been pushed to the ground. So he had to rebut that. It might have flown off on its own, got its own uh, delegate's credential or something. <laughs> 
So, how forceful is forceful heckling? I mean, when you've heckled people, do you have a, do you have a, a, a favourite phrase that you shout? Well, no, I don't. I get heckled these days. I don't do heckling anymore. It's, it's beneath. I'm a national officer. I can't do heckling anymore. General secretaries don't heckle. But when you reminisce about your great heckling days, were, were there any choice phrases you preferred? Well, the best heckle I ever heard was at an electrician junior meeting. I used to be in. It wasn't far from here, around the corner. And this bloke was giving out to the national officer. He said, "You, you're a fucking traitor." You've sold us out yet again. Sorry to swear, but... That's right. And this bloke gave him a great answer. He was a bit pissed, this fella. He was doing his roll-ups. And he said, um, where do you work, brother? I'll come down to your site tomorrow morning and we'll sort that out. Just tell me where you are. We're here to help. And he went, work? I don't fucking go to work. It's too fucking boring. <laughs> <laughs> that was the best heckle of her. Oh, that's great. But were you never sort of Maggie, Maggie, Maggie out, out, out? Were you ever down Done there? a bit of that. Uh, done a bit of trying to stop the BMP. Uh, I once saw Mency out of uh, the Angelic Upstarts knock out three fascists in five seconds. That was quite interesting. I remember it Sunday morning, so... Christ. It's been an adventurous life. <laughs> and were you never... Because obviously, left-wing politics, I mean, militant politics, whatever, direct action and, and civil unrest and wherever that line is, uh, and that can sort of change on the day. Some people are kind of drawn to perhaps the edgier side of it. Were you, uh, were you ever slightly more violent in your youth? Not in a controlled manner. Not in an organised uh, paper-selling sort of... Uh, yeah, it's more sort of uh, the Harrow Road and Kilburn High Road. Uh, 12 o'clock at night, that sort of stuff, yeah. OK. Not political at all. No, just... Completely agnostic on violence. Because <laughs> you, you certainly have the air of... Uh, My daughter's in the room here, so I can't, shouldn't be saying this. Really. And how old's your daughter? 22. OK. Oh. So actually has really only known a particular type of politics, has no She's memory... She's never of... seen me with hair. How about that? But nor has anyone else. Yeah, when did you go bald? About just after the jam second album, I think. <laughs> And did you, did you just think... I was waiting for the Clash's second album, but it took so long. <laughs> I thought I'd go bald in the meantime. But did you think... Did you sort of fight against it for a bit? No. I went... Well, two-tone came. I never had long hair anyway. And it was always a bit thin. Just looking yeah. at you, I'll see where you're going. I can read a, I can read a hairline these days. <laughs> and uh, two-tone came along, so we could all shave it off anyway. And so you could go bald without anyone knowing. So basically, one out, all out. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> now it's not coming out. It's coming out of the ears and the nose and everywhere else. It shouldn't come out now, so there you go. It's sort of hard to imagine. I can't imagine you ever going for a comb-over. I think you're too pragmatic for that. It's no comb-overs. It's, it's all exposed. It's all out there. The dome is an image now, so I couldn't comb over anyway. <laughs> Me and the hood have got the dome <laughs> sorted out. Piers Morgan seemed oddly fixated on what that meant politically. <laughs> Rather than just realise you're bald and you've got big eyebrows. It was completely surreal. So you go in there, you think, well, here's Piers Morgan, he's, uh, you know, caustic man, he's fully prepared, respected, apparently, around the world. <laughs> and he started just... I don't know where he was going. I feel like saying, have you lost the plot here? But I don't know what I said. I never know what I'm going to say, but... It was surreal. So... And he said... Oh, he apparently he put on Twitter that he'd got me. And I thought, well, I don't think you've read that right. So it got six million views, and away we went. And... Was there any off-camera chat? Was it more cordial? Have you spoken no, to him since? No, because I was looking down a camera. I couldn't even see him. 
So you do these things, it looks all, they put these things behind you, uh, which is a, a mock-up, and you're just staring into a camera. And you, there's nobody in the room apart from you and one of these headsets, and away you go. So it was very strange. They had this man prattling on. I couldn't even see him, and it sounds like a 1970s tannoy. When you went to football in the 70s, you had these little fellows who used to listen to the results <laughs> on this little white hearing aid thing. And I couldn't, I couldn't work out what he was going on about. So I just said what I said. <laughs> You're mad, effectively. <laughs> <laughs> Have you always been this calm, or have you sort of honed the, the persona in a way? Well, I'm slow to anger, so people, you know, if, if, it does happen occasionally, especially with employers, but you want to, as I said before, you, that needs to be saved up for a special occasion. <laughs> so I don't, I don't get angry too much, but you've got to be able to turn it on. And when you're dealing with employers, rail companies, all sorts of different, mm. P&O, you know, all, all sorts of manner of different transport companies... Are there different chief execs or negotiators that you could have a constructive relationship with? Do you have a very clear line? Would you never go for a pint with them, for instance? Or do you think it's, it's OK to be perhaps a little bit friendly if it helps the negotiation? It would be extremely rare for me to go for a drink with any employer. But I'm not saying it's never happened, because sometimes you have to say, how are we going to handle that? So I would never say it's not happened, but it's not a regular occurrence. And with... And rail- certainly never go for a meal. That's beyond the pale. <laughs> Draw the line at a meal. What about, what about snacks, though? Would pork scratchings count? Occasional, occasional uh, takeout sandwich you get delivered to the, uh, the talks. It still is beer and sandwiches. Well, beer and sandwiches is my union. The beer and sandwiches happened under this famous phrase was the, the, the railway workers' union in a big strike in 19... I think it was in 1966. And our general secretary and the national executive sat round the cabinet table at number 10. And Mary Wilson went and made all the sandwiches and nicked Dennis Healy's breakfast to make all the sandwiches for our executive. And the, the solution was found that night. So I'm waiting to be called in by Liz Truss and Quasi <laughs> tomorrow morning, recharge their batteries, and we might get an answer. I've seen you say in multiple uh, interviews, that actually, obviously, you do negotiate with the government. I mean, how is it? And what's that like being a, a left-wing general secretary of a, of a left-wing union dealing with the modern Tory party? Well, you don't get to do much. So uh, I only met Grant Shapps on Zoom, but it was all about COVID because he wanted stuff from us that would keep working and we wouldn't uh, down tools and say, well, we're all going to get infected. So uh, there was some protocols put in place for that. But then he just stayed in that bunker, wouldn't come out. I don't know if you remember him. He had a RAF flag and a Union Jack flag. Yeah. And he never reappeared. He's reappeared today, I think, <laughs> undermining his own party, which is OK by me. <laughs> And so I didn't ever meet him real. I don't even know if he's got legs. Because I've only seen him there. And nobody's ever seen him walk. So, and he's got he's four people as well. So it could be anyone, really. He could be in here now. He's here next week, isn't he? It's, he's the guest in a fortnight. Right, so you'll, you'll, you'll see if he's got legs. And Anne-Marie Trevelyan, the, the new one, you've probably not heard of her, but it's quite an, when I heard she was Anne-Marie, I thought she might be Irish, and that was, uh, would get a bit of a contact... But then she turned out to be Trevelyan, and Trevelyan's a very bad name in Ireland, because that was, if you know the song, The Fields of Affan Rye, it was Michael stealing Trevelyan's corn. So I could make my ambition to get back in with her and steal her corn and give it back to the workers. <laughs> How about that? But you've got to know certain Irish songs to get that one. Uh, it is a bit strange, but you've got to be professional talking to them. Yes, uh, but since you became famous, 
Do any of them say, oh, Mick Lynch, off the telly? Well, she said to me, you're going on if I got news for you. I wouldn't do that. And then that was that night when I met her. And there's some very strange ones. They all try to make it. There's a bloke who runs the... He's uh, the naval minister. So we have... Obviously, the M in our union is maritime. So I read this chap, Robert Courts. You've never heard of it, MP. And he tries to make out, because he's doing naval stuff, that he's an officer in the army <laughs> or in the navy. So and he talks to you like that. Like, and then you look him up, and he was a finance analyst at an insurance company. He's never been in the army. <laughs> But they all try to pick up off this persona that are now giving it all that because they've got some association with the armed forces. They're very strange people. Possibly, I mean, my favourite Mick Lynch moment of all mm. the TV moments was you, and, and a man who's been on telly a lot this week, Chris Philp, yeah. where you very calmly just look him in the eye and say, you're a liar. Yeah. You're lying. Stop lying. I mean, you seem to completely get inside his head at that point. Well, he told me to fuck off after the, when the camera was. Did he? Yeah, yeah. Actually said, fuck yeah, off. Yeah, I thought I've got you down. But, yeah, Kirsty, Kirsty was very upset off camera. But, yeah, it's, he's a bit... He, he reminds me of that... Remember that show... Uh, what's that... Sp- he was in the British Empire, that impressionist. What was he called? Oh, yeah, uh, Chris Barry. Chris Barry, yeah. Red Dwarf. I went over and look at him. I think he's going to say something in another accent in a minute or do an impression. Colleen. But he's the most annoying person. Why they've put him up as the chief executive or the Chief Secretary of the Treasury. And he just keeps going, like, meh, 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 and rattling out all these numbers. And you can imagine people going, this bloke's a utter tosser, you know. <laughs> Let's get him out as well. And it, I'm glad, glad they've put him in there, because he's their fallback guy. He's meant to be the man with the stats, but he never stops with stats. And it's like he's trying to sell you some kind of endowment <laughs> or something, you know. And you say, well, you're going to get 40% of the first three years of my payments, aren't you? You know, can't stand him. But... Then he is a liar. What happened there was... <laughs> what, ha- what happened there... I was in with the, the, all the governors, the management, and, the, you know, I speak to these people every day. They've been around in our industry for 30 years, and I've known some of them for a long time. And we don't sit in these negotiating tables going, bang, you're going to have that on the head. We sit there going, the government's not going to let us do anything. And they say it, the government's not going to let us do anything. So we adjourned the talks, and he said I'd walked out, because somebody had told the Daily Mail... And they didn't get a memo from Tory head office saying, tell them they've walked out of the talks. We adjourned, that's the word we use, and then we went back <laughs> after. So he was just lying uh, out, of his, out of his mouth. And so I was, was going to say, you're a liar. And you're not meant to speak. That broke the, the fourth wall, because when the camera goes on to them, you're meant to sit there like a dummy. But he was just winding me up. And if he'd been in a boozer with me, I'd be saying, you're a fucking liar. So, <laughs> there you go. Not that I do that in front of Kirsty, because she's... <laughs> She's an icon, isn't she? <laughs> <laughs> so when he tells you to fuck off afterwards, yeah. what do you say to him? Go on, mate. <laughs> Got you. Was there a part of you thinking he might snap on camera? I was hoping that would happen. <laughs> that was my ambition. And just that calmness of looking at someone and calling them a liar, is that something you've ever done before? Oh, yeah, loads of times. <laughs> I thought that. I thought he's definitely done that before. That is like a, and I imagine in a negotiation that would make some people snap. Yeah, if you get them going, if they start ranting and raving and throwing things around in the negotiation, you tend to be on top. They've got to call, call in a German. But we could normally rely on Aslev to do that in any meeting. So, they, you know, when they're there. Uh, OK, let's open up the floor to questions. So, uh, indicate clearly, and if I can ask for one-sentence questions and... Snappy answers, mate. We'll get around as many as possible. Oh, okay. Yes, at the front. And let us know your name as well, please. Uh, my name's Neil. Neil is 
it's basically got a season ticket at this gig. Has it? And it's front row in the middle every single fortnight. Good man. Neil, thank you. Slightly on the fence about how you're punishing the public, but I beat the system on Saturday because there's engineering works on the trains and the rail replacement bus services were still working. So well, he, he there used you the rail replacement bus. And is there a question, Neil? <laughs> <laughs> Lovely to know how you got somewhere on Sunday, but. If you can't fix that's the not system, a question. That's a manifesto. Don't. Okay. Why don't you fix the system what? instead of punishing the public? We don't run the railway. It's the it's the companies, the management, and the uh, the the government that runs the railway. So if if you take Avanti West Coast, which is going up to Birmingham, Manchester, and Glasgow, they, are they can't run the railway when we're not on strike. So <laughs> at, least, at least you get some consistency. Because you're being fleeced. You're being fleeced every day. They're taking profit out every day. They make out that our members have got to give up their jobs, give up their conditions, give up their salaries. We haven't had a pay rise for three years. So if we could fix the system, we would, but we're not allowed to. There's no workers' control on the railway in this country. They run it, and we are the workers that are tasked to do it, and they're singularly failing. And we have to pursue the dispute to get our members a result. But Labour said Keir Starmer saying he will nationalise the railway. Well, yeah, but the, the railway needs to come back into public ownership so we get an integrated transport policy that's going to serve the people rather than serve profit, serve the economy and serve the environment. If we want to get rid of carbon, we've got to have an integrated transport policy which is low fares, tied up with the buses, trams and tubes and the ferries all around the country so that you can get a cheap fare wherever you go, like they do in Europe, in public ownership. I feel really bad now because I was like, Neil's here every week. Meet Neil, everyone. Sorry, <laughs> right, yeah. like I think what Neil meant is he has solidarity with working people and but not he dreams of a day of low fares across the UK. <laughs> Neil is a good man. Um, okay, <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, the lady on the end. Good. Good question. So do you believe that Keir Starmer would nationalise it or is it a 10-pledge situation which refers to the pledges Keir Starmer made when he was standing for the Labour leadership and whether he has yeah, or has I've got my serious doubts. Tony Blair gave the same commitment in the 1997 uh, manifesto. He said there will be a publicly owned, publicly accountable railway. What did he do, him and Gordon Brown? They privatised London Underground and it was an absolute disaster. They brought in the PPF or the PPI, whatever you want to call it, which means our hospitals and schools and public fabric is now falling to pieces with these cheapskate builders. So, yeah, politicians lie occasionally. Uh, and so the reason we're trying to build a movement of working people that's not linked to the politicians, whether they're Scottish nationalists or Welsh politicians, we've got to make them deliver on what they say they're going to deliver. And so if he gets a, a public, uh, public-owned railway or a national care service, which is absolutely vital for our elder people, and if you remember what went on with the disaster of privatisation there, with maybe 100,000 older people dying in that pandemic because they were under-resourced. That's what we need, that stuff. And we're going to have to make them do it. That's why we don't want a 100-seat majority. We want a 20-seat majority. So when you say make them do it... Make them do it. Public protests, getting out on the street. Labour's not delivering on its manifesto. That's what we'll need to do. What if they 
just ignore you? Well, then we'll have to say we'll have to get somebody else. I mean, the, the, the Labour Party is still, in essence, a democratic structure. So the leader can be overthrown. The PLP's there. They've got structures where they can do it. But so you have to put pressure from the outside. You cannot just allow politicians who are professional class on their own to say, I've been to you, I've t- given you a load of guff over the last this three-month campaign, then we now take the ball back as politicians and we sort out with the opposition what we like, we get the spin doctors involved and we just get on with it. Politicians have got to be out amongst us and it's got to be a public activity. But obviously there are different pressures on politicians, there are different pressures, particularly on a Labour Party that barely ever wins an election in my mm. lifetime or yours. Would you genuinely threaten to bring down a Labour government? Because the only winners of that, would you'd, you'd just end up with another Tory government. Well, then we just let them do what they want then, do we? Well, no, you know, but we it, do you know what? Peter <laughs> Hayne once said, he's not an all-or-nothing person, he's an all-or-something person. Mm. Would you ro- not rather have a Labour government doing at least something for working people? Yeah, I'm not naive. I don't think any government will deliver on everything. Because, but you have your values, and this is what I say to people. They've got to set out some values that we can all support. And then policy is for every day, and what's going on, what faces you. You don't know what's going to hit you broadsides because of world events. I accept that, and they've got to tack their way through it. But you shouldn't lose touch with all the values. If you say, we believe in public ownership, at the end of your term, you've got to see some public ownership. If you, Blair came out of that term, what was it, 12 years, with more privatisation than the Tories had. That's not acceptable to any progressive person, in my view. OK. Uh, I'll take a question from the back. Right at the back there, yes. Oh. Christian Walmer, transport mm. expert, who stood to be the Labour candidate for London Mayor. I, did, thank you. I remember it very well. <laughs> I, I would like to know how you define working class these days, because obviously in the 50s and 60s there was a mass working class, people working in factories, those huge blue-collar workers who supported the concept of social democracy, and lots of those people are no longer, no longer see themselves as working class. So how do you define yeah, good question. How do you define the working class? Well, I define the working class in the traditional way, and it's nothing to do with the way these A1, B1, C2s, D3s and all this baloney, which is basically invented by the market in PR industry and, and public publicity for selling things to people, targeting... I believe that you either create wealth through serving the means of production, really old-fashioned term, or you're in charge and own the means of production. And that... The, the original socialists understood that. They weren't all Marxists. They were... Many of them were Christian socialists and whatever. If you can fall from grace, and I predict in the next three months if we don't get this government out, if you own a house, you've still got to pay for it. You might be on 40 or 50 grand a year and you might have dual incomes at that level. But people will fall through the stratas, as they call it, because they don't own the means of production. They serve it and they can be put out of work, they can be put out of their homes. And there will be an avalanche of people in the private rented sector Who's got, who, who are subject to this buy-to-let scandal uh, that Labour and the Tories let become a normal practice in our society. When I was a kid, landlords were an anathema in working-class communities. People hated them. Even, even in areas around not far from here, we had Rackman and all these gangsters. So you are working-class if you have to earn a wage and you depend on that wage for your lifestyle and your dependents' lifestyle. And that goes quite a long way up. If you remove yourself from that ability, then you stop being working class. But what, what we've been getting told is this 
equality of opportunity. And Blair was as guilty as Cameron and this lot, that what you need to do as a working class person is extract yourself from the working class, that leave them behind, and then through some benevolence or some philanthropy, allow some other select working class people to come forward and get a job in the media or become a lawyer. What we need to do is raise all working class people uh, and all working class communities so everybody's got a good paid job. And one of the key changes we need in this country is that nobody who has a job, who is earning the living, should be on benefits at all. Because it means that the, the people that run this country, the people that own the means of production, are not paying the full price of labour because it's being subsidised by the government. And Blair, Brown and all this lot believe in that. So the working class is the majority of people. And I don't believe in this, these social strata definitions. If you have to earn a salary, you're a worker. OK, so by your definition, abolishing the 45p income tax rate was a tax cut for working class people. It's a tax cut for well-off people. And most of the, many of those people will have extracted themselves because, you know, 155 grand up... I mean, I was with some very rich people on a programme last week, strangely, and they said to me, nobody I know who's on six and seven figures a year wanted another 50 grand. So, I mean, if, you, if you're Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, how much fucking money do you need? I mean, how much dough do you need? Why can't you pay Amazon workers $15, $20, or in this country, £15, what we're looking for? And if you're not prepared to do it, we should tax them. Dennis Healy said this, until the pips squeak. And progressive taxation is the best thing you can have in any society. It's the means to liberation for a lot of low-paid people. And Attlee famously said, we do not need philanthropy. The best thing that the rich man can do is pay the taxes they're required to do. And he was intent on taxing them all the way. So the more you earn, the more you pay. And that should include people like me who are on good salaries. But some of my members in my union are on good money. And some of the others are on less money. I don't believe they should all be on the same tax rate. As you get better off, you should pay more. Obviously, General probably... ripple there. Some people want to... <laughs> some people go, oh, does that mean I have to pay more? <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> but we used to pay a lot more. Under Wilson, there were a load of tax bans. I can't remember them all, but there were lots of tax bans. And the more One of them in the 90s. Great. And then it meant people like Phil Collins had to leave the country. As they always say, if Labour get in, I'm going to... I always thought they should put that back. A big list of people that are going to leave the country if we, if we have progressive taxation. And they would all be these dreadful, middle-of-the-road, uh, soft rock, <laughs> white soul artists. But... It's not a single Phil Collins song you like. No. Or Genesis. Yeah, I'm not... Sorry. Into, well, OK. What about... Because you, you're very much in sort of like the specials too, turn the selector, that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, the Clash and all that's going on. The Clash, the Who. What, does, what, the what? do you think of Britpop? Hey. I like the Who. Yeah. Uh, no, I thought it was a poor, pale impersonation of... It was what we used to call in the NME when I used to read it, and so it's derivative. <laughs> I, I hate you're against derivatives as well. Um, but was it wasn't very original, was it? But well, it didn't have to be political, did it? it just sounded no, good. original, I said. Britpop. Well, it had its own spin on things. The Verve were, were original. Blur had some original stuff. Mm. What about Oasis? Dreadful. Come on, mate. <laughs> That's just awful. 
Hang on. Have you, name me a good Oasis lyric that can stand up on its own as a piece of prose or a piece of poetry or whatever you want to call it. Uh, four and twenty million doors on life's endless corridor. Yeah, what does that mean? It doesn't matter what it means. It's about what it makes you feel. What was that one about? What was that one about? Uh, There's one about uh, somebody in the house, and it's just it's like, nur- <laughs> it's like nursery rhyme, some of it, isn't it? Which is all right. But the, the problem I'm having, obviously, is I've, I feel like we've got a lot in common. But the, the best period of my life, really, until arguably recently with the lionesses and everything, was basically the '90s, where Labour got elected. What did you do with the lionesses? Well, because England wants Oh, right, I thought you were you and the lioness. <laughs> I thought we were going to hear. We hear something exciting. <laughs> Blair got elected. Britpop, Oasis do Nebworth, Euro 96. The prim- like, everything was happening at that time. Yeah, I'm very but pleased for you. It feels, it feels like you weren't enjoying that at all. You were getting no No, questions. I was listening to uh, the Dubliners and the Wolf Tones and all that stuff as well. Yeah. <laughs> Which we Pokes. always listen to. I just thought it was a bit... Oh, it was all right. I, I did like Dodgy. They were a good band they were in that era. OK, yeah. I liked them. They were Staying a bit more original. summer, it's good enough for yeah, me. Yeah, I like that stuff. Yeah. I guess if it's good enough for me, it's good enough for you. That's exactly. That's a kind of socialist underpinning. <laughs> exactly. To it. There's a few I liked. And, uh, yeah, I still listen to some of it. But I did think it wasn't very original. But that's because I'm old. I've heard it before. Yeah. I mean, obviously, your politics are probably haven't changed since the 70s, so in a way... They're still there, 1870s yeah. in some ways. <laughs> it's true. We still believe in the values that the movement was based on, which is self-help. We've got to do it for ourselves. OK, let's get a couple more. Yes, the fellow right in the middle there. Hello. Um, as a real user, what is the Yeah. Nice move. Two bites of the cherry. <laughs> we do get that a lot. A lot of people say they want to support us, and a lot of people say from other sectors yeah. that they want to join the RMT. But, I mean, yeah, that would be nice if we could have a supporters group. Okay. That really brings me to the question I, I really want to Okay. Something that you mentioned during your which is that well, Can you tell us more about community organisations being brought into... Was that, was that about Enough is Enough or about the RMT? Well, Mick mentioned something about other, bringing in other organisations. Yeah, was that about Enough is Enough, Mick, or was that about the RMT? Well, yeah, that was... So... Yes. What a few of us think in, in the unions is that the unions have lost a connection and become very workplace orientated which is what their job is. But when unions started, and this does go back to the 1870s, they were very broadly community-based, and they would run things like institutes and uh, reading rooms, really really admirable stuff. There would be institutes in, in mill towns and uh, in coal mining towns and industrial towns, and they're still dotted around. There's one up in Wilsdon, the Railways Institute, and I was at one in Shildon up in Darlington. So it's the idea that you are a complete community of, of progressives and socialists. And the Labour movement used to have a cooperative ring that was really important. It's become less important now, but the whole cooperative movement uh, was good. Even things like uh, literacy and all that amongst working people and amongst women in particular was funded by link-ups right across the community. So that what we're saying now in Enough is Enough and the People's Assembly is that all those groups, people, people get themselves into silos. I'm campaigning 
about this bypass or I'm campaigning about this aspect of environmentalism or I'm campaigning on my identity, which is you know, a thing that I've had to develop because you know, I'm a very traditional type of person you know, and I've had to adopt to that. And we've got to find a way where they can all get under a progressive umbrella and enough is enough and People's Assembly is trying to do all that. So we're trying to break out of our shell and we do do things like the Association of British Commuters. There is a little union for for them, and we work with them and try and uh, pick up on their stuff. And they hate the railway companies as much as we do, because uh, they have to give them their money and get ripped off. So it's trying to find a network that is really progressive. It is border, uh, border, broader than uh, than what we've done. I think campaigning has become really narrow in the last few years. And it's got to, we've got to say we are a single progressive movement. You've still got your own flavours and what you want to achieve, but you'll get much further if we're all doing it at the same time, if you know what I mean. So that's what I meant by that. But it's not just what the Labour Party should be. It should be. Part. So the Labour Party's got to be part of it, but there are other parties now. We get, we've had to recognise in our union that the Scottish nationalists are a force and they're not going to go away. It doesn't matter what your views on nationalism are. So I go up and meet... Uh, really important Scottish national uh, ministers, and they've got more power than Westminster, but we do meet the Welsh Government, which is, has been backed up by Plaid Cymru in the past. So if they're dealing with transport and health in Scotland, I can't ignore that. And if we go and do a big meeting, I did a big meeting in Glasgow uh, with a 1,000 people in a theatre, and it was a really good meeting. It was an enough-is-enough type meeting. But there are Scottish nationalist MPs who are going to go, well, we are on the left, we are socialists, and we want to make sure... Some of them say, we want to make sure Sturgeon and the mainstream people don't go too, too far that way. So it's all about what kind of a movement are we? And we've got to put aside some of the stuff about nationalism and all that, that stuff. And we, we work with the Greens, and we've got to recognise the Greens are going to get a big vote in the next election. But we may not necessarily give them the result. And somehow the trade unions have got to work out how we're going to deal with that. My union deals with offshore workers, which is the oil and gas industry. So we have a bit of a a contradiction dealing with some of the environmental stuff, but we've got to put that to one side and talk about transition to new, new technology and new energy sources. Isn't there a danger with all this stuff that it's effectively, if you're not careful, just rebranding the same left-wing movements, that effectively the Socialist Worker Party calls itself the Stop the War Coalition for a bit, then it's enough is enough, and it's the same lefties turning up to Trafalgar Square saying the same stuff, and it makes you feel good, and you feel part of the community, and that in itself does have benefits. It's important to be around like-minded yeah. people, but ultimately, could, are you not just trying to rebrand the same thing that, that will only have a, a limited appeal to the wider public? It is a danger, I'll accept that, but you, you've got to keep trying. So, I'm somebody that's been very opposed to ideological causes. We will never... And ideological groups. Yeah, so, Trotskyite groups or, or Leninist groups, like the, communist, the old Communist Party, I really dislike those people. I always, And anyone will tell you that knows me, in our movement, I've stood out like a sore thumb as being a lefty that won't affiliate to people that sell newspapers. It really bores the tits off me. <laughs> I've got to tell you, I've read them all and you never want to read them again. And every time you look at them, there's a new version of it because they've split. <laughs> and working class people find those organisations a real turn-off and absolutely tedious. So what's, what is different about this, I think, is that people like us and the CWU and Fire Brigade Union that are full of... People who are quite respected, I think, in communities, you know, public sector workers and firefighters and postmen and uh, postal workers, are coming out and saying, we're going to try and mentor your movement so that we've got 
a, a big move for change, a movement for change, as we call it. And there are many people on council estates and other areas that used to be organised. So when I grew up on my estate in Paddington, there was a fearsome residence association that was full of... It was all run by women. And they would get hold of the councillors and take them over the coals and say, why have you not done these repairs? Where's the spending? Why are the swings in the park not working? And blah, blah, blah. It sounds very petty, but they are actually working-class people with real power in their communities. And I think a lot of people have lost that. They've, they've stopped realising how much power they have all of the time, every day. To get these councillors and regional authorities and all that and get them into rooms like this and say, what are you doing about this problem? Why are you implementing Tory cuts to Labour councillors and to Liberals? Why are you going into coalitions with Tories to implement Tory cuts? And occasionally to Labour politicians, why are you going into coalitions with da-da-da? You see what I mean? People have forgotten. They think it all exists online, I think. And they think that these petitions to Parliament get 100,000 people. Everybody's satisfied with it. But there's nothing better than getting a politician in a room and making them sweat and thinking, how do I get out of here tonight? Because all these angry people are screaming at me, saying, you've done nothing for us since we put you in. That is people power. And we've got to teach people to do it again, I think. Yeah. There are some things better than that, I'm sure. But um, do you, is there a risk as well sometimes to trade unions? Maybe perhaps those of you as well that are more identified as being on the left and are involved mm. in maybe harder left movements, that as well as representing working people, which you do very effectively, and work, uh, representing your members and making the case for any individual case of uh, industrial action and wider union membership, that sometimes as well, if you're in a way too politically active, you can end up, perhaps as the RMT has with Russia saying things about Ukraine. Well, the RMT, the, hasn't, the RMT has not said things about Russia. What they've dug up is the RMT's position about the Russian invasion of Ukraine is it's an illegal, aggressive war that's in, unacceptable on a human level. It's unacceptable politically. It's unacceptable legally. The Russia needs to get out of Ukraine tomorrow. They need to give up, leave, and have uh, honour Ukrainian sovereignty. That is the RMT's position. And that's what I have said as the chief spokesman for the RMT. But have you been on Russia today? No, never. Never once? Never been on RT? No. no. So when Eddie Dempsey met with uh, Russian uh, yeah. separatists in 2015 after the invasion of Crimea, does that make you question... Well, he wasn't an officer of the Union. He was a, a younger person. He was working on the railway. It's a bit odd to meet with that sort of person. It is a bit odd, and I've told him that. It's unacceptable <laughs> and he won't be doing it again. And it's, if he was here now, he would say it was a big mistake. But does it make you worry sometimes when you see the way that propaganda works to see people on the left having sympathy with Vladimir Putin? Well, I don't know anyone on, that I know on the left. I don't have any sympathy with Vladimir Putin. I, he's not a socialist. He has banned lots of socialist groups in Russia, uh, even new ones that are trying to crop up, but he's got rid of the old Stalinist ones as well. He's not a friend of the workers. He is a virtual dictator uh, on a sort of traditional Russian model. I don't support him at all. And I don't support what he's doing in the Ukraine. I don't support what he's doing to Russian uh, soldiers in the Ukraine as well, which is having them butchered, by the way. That's entirely unacceptable as well. So, um, just before we go, and this has been phenomenal, um, what is the best rail companies to travel with in the UK? London <laughs> Underground, they're publicly owned. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
But of the others? There are. Chilton Railway runs, I was on it yesterday, runs a decent railway. Uh, they get very hot. I wouldn't. They do get hot, I can't help that. <laughs> but Old rolling why do stop. they not open the windows on Chilton Road? Because uh, it's air conditioned. You can't open the windows <laughs> on air conditioned. Uh, but they have heat on full blast. This is, is going to. Well, you'd have to ask them that. I know, but. I'm not running Chilton Railway. No, They're wasting fuel industry. if they do that. Okay, what about. Um, obviously, Avanti are probably amongst the worst. Are they? they are the worst performing railway. Eurostar's pretty good. I used to work for them. Yeah. They're publicly owned, but they're publicly owned by the Railway of France. <laughs> what about LNER? They're, they're good reputation, LNER, um, in public ownership at the moment. It's a bit of a false idea, this public ownership. It's the office of last resort, or the operator of last resort. So they're, just, they're in the antechamber when uh, uh, Anne-Marie Trevelyan privatised them again, but I don't think they dare at the minute. So, I mean, every, most people want a change in structure of the railway. We need a coherent railway, even if... And I don't know why they privatised the, the railway the way they did. It was the least sensical thing you could ever have done. I think we're going to move towards a more coherent railway in the future, where you can have different flavours, but it will be under one set of principles. Talking one of flavours... Yeah, well, yeah, flavours are very important because some of the stuff on those trolleys is terrible. Awful. I mean... Does the RMT have a view on the flavour of crisps and the availability of sandwiches? Because there's nothing worse than eventually getting on a train and going, oh, we're sorry to announce there's no buffet service today. You think, I deliberately didn't eat because I was going to get something on this train. Well, in the future, Matt, when Blair's... Uh, not Blair's, Star Starmer. <laughs> Starmer is in power and we have full public ownership. Walker's crisp will be worker's crisp. <laughs> so you'll be all right. And the final question, Mick. Um, what is the most right-wing opinion you've got? Uh, or Tory, or Conservative? Or... Uh, well, it's, it's not my opinions, it's my view of modern life. It's reactionary. I've said this before. Oh, God. And there are some people in the room. I don't understand piercings or tattoos. <laughs> I, just don't, I just don't understand it. When my old man, he, he said to me, if you ever see a bloke who's got a swallow on his hands there, and they were very, he's either been in the Navy or he's going to have a fight with you. So if you and if he's got swallows there don't go in the same bar as him. So I don't understand tattoos. They made you a criminal or a sailor. And he told me to be wary of all of those people. But now everybody's having tattoos, and I don't get it. Piercings is beyond the pale for me. So it's more, it's more perception of modern life. Like all old men, I can't handle it sometimes. I get that, but piercings and tattoos have been around a while. Yeah, but why does everyone have to have them? You used to have a tattoo because it made you unusual. Yeah. Now I'm unusual because I haven't got a tattoo. <laughs> That's the thing. I just don't get it. If you had to have a tattoo, <laughs> what would you have and where? Well, it would have to be the Sacred Heart of Jesus or an Irish harp or something like that. That's what it would have to be. Because oh. I like the Sacred Heart of Jesus, even though I'm an atheist. Because <laughs> in every th Irish house, and there's one in my house, because we inherited it from my mother-in-law, there's a little Sacred Heart of Jesus and his heart is out, which is the most peculiar thing you'll ever see in your life. There's a man standing there with his heart exposed. And this little red light that we used to, to buy, if you're right, it's only in Irish households. Yeah. And we inherited one from my mother-in-law, my, my wife's here, it's her mum. When they got married in 1961, I think, they bought this bulb and it's still going today. <laughs> and as Morrissey said, and we could end on this, this is a great line, there is a light that never goes out <laughs> and it's in my hall. LAUGHTER uh. Yeah. 
Lots of things that Morrissey said since that perhaps we wouldn't agree with. Well, that is probably one of my biggest problems. I love the Smiths, and Morrissey... I don't know where he's going. <laughs> what, what the fuck's happened there? <laughs> Mick, this has been an absolute pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, before we thank Mick, please thank everyone at Avalon at the uh, Duchess Theatre for making tonight possible. For all our public transport workers who got us here safely and got us home as well. But ladies and gentlemen, for a true star of modern politics, Mick Lynch! (laughs) (laughs) Shall I go? See ya. Thank you. Well, there you go, Mick Lynch. Uh, and thank you. I know so many people have been in touch afterwards and it's the first time they've come to the show. Um, and I know that's true. Obviously, every fortnight is someone's first show. Um, but thank you to everyone who came. And don't forget those future shows. 17th of October, Grant Shapps. 7th of November, David Dimbleby. 14th of November, Matt Hancock. The 5th of December, Rachel Reeves. And I'm doing the last three performances of my continually rewritten show, Clowns to the Left of Me, Jokers to the Right, which now includes a developing impersonation of current Prime Minister Liz Truss and those dates, Tuesday the 18th of October at the Leicester Square Theatre, Friday the 21st of October at the Bloomsbury Theatre at Theatre, and Friday the 28th of October also at the Bloomsbury Theatre. So the last three performances of a show that is effectively now a brand new show since I did it in Edinburgh, but there we are. That is the the privilege of doing this job. Uh, Thank you so much for downloading this. Thank you to everyone who comes to the shows, whether it's in Edinburgh, whether it's on tour, whether it's to the political party live, and thank you for downloading this. Please leave uh, a written review because it helps the podcast get up the charts. Tell all your friends and family about it. Share it on social media. And I will see you for a very special evening on the 17th of October at the Duchess Theatre with Grant Chaps. Ta-ra. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. <laughs> <laughs> you will be right Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.